The fourth chapter of the book of Ruth really is a hodgepodge, or as the um, kind of the popular word now is a plethora, a plethora of truths and principles that gives us an opportunity to see from the fourth chapter several things that that are important and applicable to life in this story. I'd like to do this much review to remind us of um, the background of this book. It has four main characters. Naomi, a woman who, with her husband, Elimelech, because of a famine in Bethlehem, Bethlehem, the house of bread, they went down to a another country across the border into another country called Moab. They had two sons, and these two sons married women, Moabites women. And it wasn't long until Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. If that was not enough tragedy for her to experience, she lost her two sons. And so this woman now is left with two daughters-in-law, Word came that the famine had uh, subsided in Bethlehem, and so Naomi decides she'll return to Judah. Her two daughters-in-law in, uh, decide they'll go back with her, and she discourages them. But one daughter-in-law by the name of Ruth insists, and so Naomi and Ruth make their way back to Judah. Enter a man by the name of Boaz. Now Boaz is a, is a near kinsman to Elimelech, to Naomi and her husband. And there is this ancient law of Moses that when a person die, uh, has to forfeit his land because of poverty, then the, the nearest kinsman has the option of redeeming that property at his choice, his choice. And any time the land is sold, it has that stipulation that if there is a near kinsman, he can buy that land back, redeem that land. It's found in the 25th chapter of the book of Leviticus. And so they are going to invoke this law of Moses. Boaz is going to invoke this law. In the evolution of time, this thing had developed so that not only was a person responsible, wasn't his, just his opportunity, but he was responsible to buy back this land uh, that his um, uh, nearest kinsman had had to forfeit. But upon his death, this nearest kinsman was responsible, had the responsibility to take the widowed uh, wife, the wife who had been widowed, as his wife to raise up children, to carry on the family name. And that's what Boaz is um, invoked to do, although he is, as we've noticed already, not the nearest kinsman. The word is goel, it's redeemer in the Bible, but the nearest kinsman, he's ready to, to redeem the land. When he finds out he has to take the woman, he, he backs out on that, and Boaz becomes the, the husband of Ruth. That's the story. But there are some subplots in chapter 4 that I want us to look at before we uh, see what uh, is involved in the latter part of chapter 4. And the first subplot, if you're following along in your outline, is the incarnation of integrity. And I want to read verses 1 through 6. 
Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz spoke was passing by. So he said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. This person that was passing by is really the person who is qualified to be the Goel, the, near, the, the Redeemer. And Boaz is giving him that opportunity. It says in verse 2, And he took men, ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the closest relative, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, has to sell the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. So I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it before those who are sitting here, and before the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabites, the widow of the deceased, in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance. And the closest relative said, I cannot redeem it for, I, for myself, lest I jeopardize my own inheritance. Redeem it for yourself. You may have my right of redemption." For I cannot redeem it. The incarnation of integrity. Now, integrity is not just a word that's found in the dictionary, nor is it only the quality that we ought to find or we expect in leaders. Integrity is the incarnation of the character of God in the life of another human being. When you say that a person is a person of integrity... You're talking about the incarnation of the character of God in that human life. Somebody said that reputation is what other people think you are, but integrity is what God and you know you are. And Boaz was a man who incarnated integrity. He was a man of integrity. Now, there are three th ways that you can, you know, by the way, the best way to understand what integrity is, is to see integrity in the life of another person. So we see this in the life of Boaz. Integrity, first of all, can be seen in truthfulness. A person of integrity is a person whose word is his bond. What he says is what he'll do. He's a person of truth. Now Boaz made this promise to Ruth that he would take care of this matter that day and he did exactly what he said. A person of integrity is a person who when he says he will do something or he makes a promise, he always keeps it. We're talking about the value of a person's word. His word is his bond. Now does it bother you that... that um, um, nobody trusts anybody, and that there is a basic underlying suspicion that, that what we hear from other people is really probably not the truth. I, uh, I read some interesting and alarming statistics not long ago. These statistics indicate that half of the people who watch television don't believe anything that's said on television. 
So if a person gets up there and he, he's advertising something, uh, half the people who watch that don't believe what he's saying in the first place. What is even more alarming is that one-third of the people interviewed said they don't believe a word the preacher says. <laughs> All right, big crowd here tonight. Third of you don't believe a word I'm saying. Okay. And one-half of the eligible voters voted in the last election. Only less than one-half voted in the last election. And when asked why, these people said, well, you can't believe anything anybody says anyway. If you grew up in my generation, um, you, you're familiar with the Saturday Evening Post. And the cover of the Saturday Evening Post was usually a painting by Norman Rockwell. Do y'all, are you all familiar with those paintings? Uh, you, youth over here, maybe, but I love Norman Rockwell's paintings. Uh, we have a Christmas book of all his paintings, Christmas paintings. I love to look through that thing. It's Americana on canvas. And he has one of this weighing in of the Thanksgiving turkey. And here's this butcher in this butcher shop. And he has this ample stomach, you know. And here's this little old lady. And, she's, and they're checking out the scales. They're both in, looking at the scales intently. And you just kind of get the feeling that there's something under, you know, that you're not seeing in, if you don't look closely, and as you look closely, you see what, what's happening here. While they're weighing in the Christmas turkey, the butcher's punch, pushing down on the scales with his thumb, and the little old lady's pushing up on the scales with her forefinger. And the title of the, of the, of the painting is, A Study in Thumbs and Forefingers. Now that butcher could be the chairman of the deacons and the local Baptist church, and that woman could be the president of the WMU. She has her hair pulled back in a bun. That qualifies her, doesn't it? All right. <laughs> oh, mercy, I'm in trouble. <laughs> and the whole idea is I'll, do, I'll sacrifice integrity to make a few pennies here or save a few pennies there. Do you cheat on your test? When you turn in your work at school, is it really your work? When a person transacts business with you, can he count on what you tell him? We're talking about the value of what somebody says. Is it trustworthy? Second, integrity can be seen in fairness. So Boaz gets these ten men, the elders of the city, five times more men than he needed. In the law of Moses, you just need two witnesses, but he got ten. And the reason he got ten to witness this transaction was that he wanted to be completely and totally fair. And right up front, he tells, now you are the one who qualifies to be the person who gets this property and gets this land. It's really your opportunity. It's really your privilege and he brought ten people in to see that the negotiation was totally and completely fair. You can tell a person's integrity by the way he transacts his business. He is totally fair. And he seeks fairness in what he does without discrimination. I mean, there's none of this business of... You know, if you're the uh, big man in town, I'm going to give you a little bit of a break on this thing. I mean, it, he's, a, he's totally fair. He's a teacher that's hard but fair. And he's a businessman who transacts business and fairness. That's integrity. Third, 
You can see integrity in gracefulness. Gracefulness. Graciousness or gracefulness. Now, from the moment he laid eyes on Ruth... Now, we're not talking about physical attraction here. From the moment he laid eyes on Ruth, he responded to her in grace. Now, grace is that which is really undeserved, not deserved. And even though she was a Moabitees, a Moabitees woman, he accepted her as she was. And he responded to her in grace. He accepted her as she was. Now, how much of how you deal with people is, is in grace? That is, do you just go by the letter of the law or do you give latitude for people and their personality? Do you, do you accept them as they are? Is there discrimination? That's what I'm talking about. Now, there are some characteristics of gracefulness. One is patience. And another is forgiveness. So that we don't go by the letter of the law, we give freedom for a person to be that person they are. Now let me ask you, let me ask you an important question. Does a person have to change and conform to what you want and desire of that person before you accept them? That's integrity. All right, second. In verses 7 through 10, he talks about the ingredients of marriage, believe it or not. Well, let's read those. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning the redemption and the exchange of land to confirm any matter. A man removed his sandal and gave it to another, and this was the manner of attestation in Israel. So the closest relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, and he removed his sandal. There's this public covenant going on. Now watch this. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses today that I have bought the land of Naomi and all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Moreover, look at this. I want everybody to witness that I have acquired Ruth, the Moabites' widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased on his inheritance, so that the name of the deceased may not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace, you are witnesses today. Ingredients of marriage. Now, I think all of us have somewhat, uh, you know, of a concern about the disintegration and the... um, decay and the deterioration of the sanctity of that institution. Um, Friday afternoon, we get the Daily Democrat, see if there's anything in there worth, re- uh, see if what all good news is in there. And, and, and we were uh, taking a, the Democrat, we were looking at there, and, and sa- Friday my wife said, well, there are not many marriage licenses, but lots of divorces granted. If you ever know, take a, take a shot at that. Uh, about any Friday afternoon, there are more m- divorces granted than marriage license issued. It's, a, it's an alarming thing. Now, the, the sanctity of marriage is so important that it is not to be entered into lightly or treated flippantly. This is serious business to be married. And many folks enter into marriage without really knowing what really makes a marriage. This really happened. 
I was talking to a couple a few years back, right in here in my office. And I was doing a little premarital counseling, and I, I, I had, uh, you know, I, I have a, a belief that one of the things that makes for a good marriage is to have some kind of, you know, have things in common. And so I was going over some things that, you know, are helpful to, in marriage, and I said, now, one of the things that, that's pretty important in being married is that we have things in common. I said, what do you feel like that y'all have in common? Long pause. True story. They said, well, we like motorcycles and pizza. I mean, it just kind of like a turn on a light, isn't it? And pizza. Yeah, pizza. We like motorcycles and pizza. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I asked for it. <laughs> what, what can I say? I'm, motorcycles and pizza. Well, it's not hardly enough on which to build a marriage. Now, I want, I want to get serious with you now. Watch this carefully, you guys here on the front row. There are three things in this text that suggest that are essential in a, in a, in a marriage. Number one is a personal commitment. Now, you can take the word commitment and you can write it across the book of Ruth and it would be appropriate. For Ruth made a commitment to Naomi. He said to her mother-in-law, Don't ask me not to leave you or to stop from following after you. For where you go, I'm going. Where you live, I'm going to live. And where you die, that's where I want to be buried. She made a commitment to her mother-in-law. And she made a commitment to her husband, to Boaz. And Boaz made a commitment to Ruth. Note that it was not an emotional, lustful attachment. Nothing takes the place of commitment in marriage. Mutual and lifelong, I'm going to remain in this marriage even though it's riddled with adversity. I was looking through some, always trying to find new ways to... Um, do weddings, and I was looking through some stuff the other day that I had uh, suggesting on marriage ceremonies, and I came down to the traditional vow, and it said this, not, it did not say, as long as we both shall live. It said, as long as we both shall love. I love you today, but I can't guarantee it tomorrow. I love you now, but I don't know about next week. Marriage is the commitment of two people forever, as long as we both shall live, till death do us part. Second, there is in this um, passage a public covenant, a public covenant. Now, now watch this carefully. The primary biblical picture of marriage is one of a public covenant. And so he brought out all the elders and all the people and they witnessed this event. Marriage in the biblical sense is a public, involves a public witness. Public witness is an aspect of covenant making. For weddings constitute more than social performances. They represent covenant making before, other, uh, before others because 
vows are not private matters. Vows are public matters of pledging one's fidelity to another. All right, third, there is mutual communion. Okay, the ingredients of marriage, personal commitment, public covenant, mutual communion. Now, we've got to skip down to verse 13 and read that. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And, she, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. There is mutual communion, sexual union, sexual union. Now listen to me carefully. Sexual union means more than bodily union. Sexual union involves ultimate intimacy. It means ultimate intimacy. And it symbolizes a mutual communion. Marriage is a lifetime of intimacy. It means the sharing of one's life with another person in a mutual oneness. And a person is not ready for marriage if all he's interested in is the bodily union, is the sexual aspect. It is the sharing of a life of mutuality and intimacy. It means I care for you. I will treat you like I will treat no other person. And I'll give up my life for you. I will enter into your life as one. My third thing we're doing here. Man, seven minutes, got to do two points. Got to listen quick. The inclination of tragedy. Verses 14 through 17. Then the, woman said, the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today. And may His name be, become famous in Israel. May He, may he also be your, to, to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you it is better to you than seven sons have given birth to Him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. And the neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi, so they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. The inclination of tragedy. They said, Blessed are you. He's taught, they talked about the blessings of tragedy, the benefits of tragedy. Naomi stood before these people and they called her blessed. Blessed are you because... There is blessings in tragedy. Is that, could it be? Well, I think it is. Number one, tragedies help us to appreciate, to know and appreciate blessings. You listening? To have suffered bad times helps us appreciate good times. Naomi lived without hope of a son to carry on the father's name, the, the family name, so that when this grandson was born, when Obed was born, how special he was, born out of her tragedy. You can't appreciate having until you have not. And we can appreciate blessings more when we know what it's like not to have them. Tragedies in life, when we lose everything, helps us to know and appreciate blessings. Um, I, I called um, uh, my dear friend today, uh, 
ask for permission to read this. Is it okay if I read this? Did you say it's okay or would you rather me not? Okay, I didn't know you were going to be. I, I, I want some of these days when she's able to, to hear that, I'm going to read this poem written by Lisa Marie, her granddaughter. It's, it's a 14-year-old child who's had severe illness because of Lyme disease. And this precious child writing this poem about the suffering she's gone through, and, and it's, it, it's the most impressive thing. It's hard, for, hard to listen to, though, when, you're, when it's your family. We'll be able to read one of these days. The point of this poem is, is I've learned to understand how the goodness of God in the midst of tragedy. 14-year-old child. Number two. Tragedies help us put our faith in words. Help us put our faith in words. I don't think we really know the reality of faith until that faith is tested. It's in the crucible of tragedy that an unshakable faith is, emerges. It's in, the, it's in the fire that, that the, the gold is refined. There's an old Chinese proverb that says, He who is born in the fire will not fade in the sun. Number three, tragedies help us see the providence of God. Now, Naomi knew that nothing outside the providence of God would have brought about this situation. I mean, being in the field with Boaz, all of this is just the unfolding of the providence of God. And in the midst of tragedy, we see that God cares about His people and He works to help them. And four, Tragedies force us to look beyond ourselves. Tragedies bring us to the end of ourselves and help us to see that if we get help, it's going to have to come from somewhere outside of us. One last thought, please. I want you to go back to number, verse 11 and look at the infallibility of providence. Let me show you something interesting. And all the people who were in the court and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Leah. Tell me now, uh, who is Rachel and Leah? Who are, the, who are those ladies? Pardon me? Jacob's wife. Who, who said that? Good. Give him a star. Jake gets a star. And Stephanie. And Jennifer. Um, Rachel and Leah. Now, if they're Jacob's wives, they're the mothers of the twelve tribes, right? They're the princesses of the people of God, the, the princesses of the nation. From these two women came the twelve tribes. God delight making, putting beggars in the status of princesses. That's what he's saying. God just He's like the parable of the prodigal son. And the prodigal son came to himself. He said, I'm going to go back and tell my father, make me one of the hired servants. And when he went back, his father said, no, I'm not going to make you one of the hired servants. I'm going to restore you as a son. God delights in bringing beggars into the same, on the same level as princesses. Look at verse 12. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now that story is found in the 38th chapter of the book of Genesis, and it's the invoking of the Goel, 
uh, principle. Interesting. That they were practicing the invoking of the Goel, the nearest kinsman, redeemer, before it was actually a law of Moses. They were practicing it before it was an official law. And he's referring to this in, invoking, read the story, Tamar invokes the law of the Goel, and Judah goes in with her and bears a son, and his name is Perez, and from him comes this line from which, as it happened, Boaz himself had been born. The providence of God. Now I want you to turn with me right quickly to the book of Matthew, chapter 1, to the genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, to the genealogies. Now when a Jewish writer... Um, gave the uh, genealogies, he, 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 he always, for the most part, he, he just um, gave the genealogy of the male, the man. But he, um, he, he uh, diverts from that in, the, in this chapter, and he, he, do, he talks about four women. He inserts the name of four women. Um, Totally um, uh, unusual is this. Now look at these four women. It's three. And to Judah were born Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Take a pencil and circle. That's the first woman. We just talked about her. Genesis 38. And verse 5 is the second woman. And to Salmon was born Boaz by Rahab. Boaz's mother was Rahab. Now, that name sounds familiar, doesn't it? Rahab is the harlot. She's a harlot. She's this harlot who was in uh, Jericho when the spies went in to spy out the land, and she hid these men. She was a harlot, became the mother of Boaz. There's some theories that that's why this man, and we indicated the last time we looked at this, that he was an older man. That's why he probably couldn't get married in Judah, because his mother was a prostitute, was Rahab. Third name. In verse 5, And to Boaz was born Obed by Ruth. Third name, Ruth. We, we've, we've seen that. Verse 6, and to Jesse was born David the king, and to David was born Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Didn't even mention her name. Everybody knows it. Let's say it together. Her name was, starts with a B, Bathsheba. Four women. Two of them have reputations. One is a prostitute. The other is this woman um, uh, who David uh, slept with. And, and had a child. Now in the providence of God, watch this. Somebody said that he thinks the reason why God had Matthew to pin these women's names in the midst of this genealogy, unusual thing, is to show that if he had sinners as his ancestors, he has sinners as his descendants, and I'm one of them. In the providence of God, He takes the most sinful people and uses them to accomplish His, his, to accomplish his plan. And that's the glory of redemption. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for this great Word. Teach us that which is important to life 
and I pray that it will not fall on deaf ears. For I ask in Jesus' name for His sake. I wonder if there's someone tonight who would, during invitation, would come and give his heart to Christ, her heart to Jesus, accept Him as her, His Savior or Savior. Or maybe you need to come tonight, you feel led to come and join this church to recommit yourself to God. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.